Gentlemen, either there should be a prayer book. I think on every other desk. Also, I've got copies of some liturgy here. So uh, just raise your hand if you need a copy. I don't have a prayer book or a copy. That's what you need. Yeah. That it? Either a prayer book or a printout. Anybody else? Yeah. A couple? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Prayer books or copies? You can't read? Yeah, well, it's written. Yeah. Well, I wasn't prepared for anybody that can't read, so. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Uh, Dear Father, please, uh, I pray that what we do this morning uh, would would be good in your sight. Wherever I am right, encourage me. Where I'm wrong, stop me. Where I'm weak, strengthen me. That the words that I speak and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. And in the final analysis, your Son would be glorified by what we do this morning. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This is just a one-time class on the theology and the history of our Anglican liturgy. And I don't even uh, pretend that it is any kind of in-depth historical overview, but this is just a a glimpse, if you would. And I do it for one primary reason, and that reason is that to some extent, I believe, our rich Anglican heritage is becoming an endangered species, so to speak. I'm not alone when I say that I'm afraid that our Anglican uh, uh, church, in many ways, is departing from our, from our rich heritage. And, and I'm just not talking about the Episcopal Church. Back in the summer of 2002, Jane and I were in London in England, and we scouted out for some churches to, to worship, not just on Sunday, but some other, some other worship experiences, and we had an opportunity to visit quite a few churches there for worship, and one of the things that we had asked for was some good, sound, orthodox, evangelical churches, as opposed to the more staid, liberal Church of England if, if, if you would. Uh, and what we found was that while the preaching was solid and, and the prayers were fervent and there were many of our, of our wonderful hymns that were being played, uh, that there was very little liturgical framework. And I kept saying, well, of all places, the, the England, which is the, the, the mother of the, the, the birthplace of, of our Anglican, of Anglicanism and our Anglican liturgy. And I learned that the evangelical churches there in England at that time and continue to this day have more or less departed from the historical liturgies in order to disassociate themselves with the revisionist liberal church of England. The evangelical churches, they want their own identity. And the first thing that has been, the first thing that is 
that has been jettisoned is the is the the first thing to go has been the old liturgy. And you talk about, in my opinion, you talk about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think that's the epitome of, 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 of that old aphorism. But for whatever reason, I would say also in, in the United States that I, we're losing ground with Anglican churches. Uh, and in an amazing amount of instances, there's no really recognizable uh, liturgy at all. Andrew Pearson was telling me that when he visited Charleston a while on, on vacation here recently, that he visited uh, a, a very fine church, and, and he didn't recognize, if, if he didn't know that it was a fiscal church, he said he never would have recognized it because it was just, it was just completely void of, of any liturgy. Now, yes, right to... And I'll say it in all sincerity, it's better than nothing. But, 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 and, and right too is indeed being used in many, many Episcopal churches, both in conservative churches and liberal churches and high church and low church. You will, you will, you will see uh, right too uh, in, in a lot of instances. But right one, which bears, for, for the most part, bears the authentic imprint, imprint of Thomas Cranmer's wonderful 16th century liturgy that he almost single-handedly put together uh, is losing ground in regular worship. And the churches that do use right one, more often than not, is it the early service that will affect the fewest amount of people? Let's do it early and let's get it over with, so to speak. And the last thing I want to do it sounds like I'm grinding axes. I, I'm just telling you what, what is the fact. In many cases, there is no recognizable liturgy. In a lot of cases, yes, there is right to, uh, but, it's been, but it's been kind of uh, relegated to, uh, to the very early services, if in fact they use them. I, I simply want to talk about our rich heritage this morning, as objectively as I can, uh, and how we came to it. We'll talk a little bit about the history of it and also a little bit of, of, of our experience with it. Uh, first of all, be, be it a fact that we Anglicans do claim to be a liturgical church. That's our heritage. Many very fine Christians do not come from a liturgical church, but Anglicans have a distinct liturgical heritage. And the first thing that I want to emphasize this morning is I'm not saying that liturgical churches do it right uh, and non-liturgicals do it wrong. I'm not here to sell anything. Uh, or, or to disparage uh, or, or to look down on non-liturgical churches. But I, I do want to share who we are uh, and how we got there and how I think is, it would be a shame to lose uh, our, our precious heritage. So let me kind of start at the beginning. The first mention of a worship service in the New Testament is Acts 2, verses 2 through 42. Two little verses. You've read it before. And they, devote, they, that's the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Get that, please. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. We do claim to be an apostolic church. If the apostles taught it and the apostles wrote it, you can book it. They had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread, communion, and the prayers. Now, that's the first mention of a kind of service. 
Now, in the, in the New Testament, there's, there's no mention of a liturgy in worship. But scholars believe that when they gather together, as they mentioned here in Acts chapter 2, that we found bits and pieces of the Scripture that kind of slowly came together as a kind of liturgy. Let me read to you from the first mention of a worship, of, of a, other than Acts 2, the first mention in church history of a group of Christians when they got together. Now, this was written by Justin Martyr, and the time of this is 150 A.D. So this, this is actually the first record. But listen to this. And on the day, <clears throat> this is direct quote from what they found in this ancient, ancient manuscript. And on the day called Sunday, no longer on Saturday, because the resurrection of Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus changed everything, and these converted Jews now, now were worshiping on Sunday. They came, uh, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gathered together to one place. And the members of the and the memoirs of the apostles and their writing and the writings of the prophets were read. Now that would be what we call in our liturgy today the lessons. They read the lessons. And he continues, as long as time permits, I love it, then the reader when the reader has ceased, the president, that is the officiant, verbally instructs and exhorts on the imitation of those good things that were read. That would be the the sermon. And then we all rise together and pray. That would be the prayers of the people. And as we therefore said, when our prayers is ended, the bread and the water were brought up. So the ushers would bring up the bread uh, and the wine. And the president in, in like manner offers prayers and thanksgiving. That would be the Eucharistic prayer. According to his ability. I love that. You know, if it's, it's according to his ability. <clears throat> And the people assent, saying, Amen. And there is the distribution of each. That would be the administration of the bread and the wine. And a participation over which thanks had been given. They thank God for what he accomplished through the bread and the wine. And for those who are absent, a portion was sent by deacons. That would be late Eucharistic ministers. Now, that was the first apology of Justin. As I say, in the essay was a majestic tapestry that is from 150 A.D. <clears throat> it's quite exciting to find that. In 1875, another manuscript was covered, and this was discovered actually hidden away and tucked away in some closet in the Patriarchal Library of Jerusalem at Constantinople. And it's called the Didache, if that's, uh, that rings uh, bells for those of you who study church, church history. This document was called the Didache. And scholars believe it also to be first century, maybe even earlier than Justin Martyr. And among other things, it contains a text which we believe that would then have been read when they gathered together to break the bread that Justin Mortar had just described. And this was the text that was read. It's right out of 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. You will use very familiar. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11:23 and 4. For I received from the Lord, this is Paul, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often she shall drink it in remembrance of me. So as often you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Praise the Lord. Scholars believe that this was, this, they have good reason to believe that these texts 
would have emerged is a kind of standard uh, recitation for such occasions when they gathered for the breaking of the bread. Similarly, at baptism, we have the, 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 detail, the detailed account of the eunuch in action when the, when the Ethiopian eunuch <coughs> uh, was baptized. <coughs> if you remember that, <coughs> we have reason to believe that that little bits of scripture there made its way into a baptismal liturgy <coughs> where the eunuch says to, to Philip, <coughs> see there is water, what is to prevent my being baptized? And remember, uh, Philip says, if you believe with all your heart Jesus is Lord, then you may be baptized. Well, we have reason to believe that also emerges as kind of baptismal liturgy, where the candidate would say, see, there's water. What permits me being baptized? And the efficient with the stole on would say, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you may. And then we say, I believe, and then we do the baptism. So it's kind of neat. But my point right now is that good liturgy always relies heavenly on Scripture. Now, over the early years of Christianity, <coughs> liturgical collections began to show up. And when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, we're talking 4th century, that was after that's our Constantine, you know, when, when he was converted, all of a sudden, like overnight, Rome became Christian. You know, whether, you know it, it, it would behoove you to, to, to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, okay. Uh, and the unity of the empire became the concern of the emperor, and it required a common faith. And in the passing of time, these great theological debates that emerged, they gave birth to, to, these, uh, to these great convocations and produced the, the common creeds. So the, the, the emperor saw that we would have a common creed, and, and it, became the, it became the practice of the emperors to enforce spiritual unity, not only through the creeds, but also through <clears throat> liturgical conformity. And the, the Eucharist, and this is, we're talking early now, but this is fourth century, where the unity of the whole empire was, was one of the key things to that unity was liturgical, where it, would, it didn't matter where you went to church, <clears throat> you would find a uniform liturgy, a standard liturgy adopted in the fourth century and passed by the theologians who were working for Constantine. Now, the Eucharist was not the only liturgical service in the early medieval church. There were liturgies for baptism, penance, burial of the dead. And so all of this, when all of this kind of found its way into one common book, that was kind of the early beginnings of what we would now call a prayer book. Before then, they had you know, liturgies over here for baptism, over here for the burial, one for the Eucharist here, one for over here. Then they kind of put it together in one book. So what emerged there was a kind of a... Uh, and a single cover. It was a prayer book. Now, all of this is like a, everything that I've covered so far is like a two-semester course in seminary. <clears throat> but <clears throat> that's just a scratch to service. But a lot of what we find in our Anglican prayer books uh, find their roots back in these ancient, ancient liturgies. <clears throat> June 9, 1549, something marvelous happened. And that was the first Anglican prayer book was put together and introduced into the <clears throat> churches of England by an act of parliament. Can you believe that? It was influenced greatly by the Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> Don't let any people talk in and say, well, the Anglican church is kind of a bridge between Roman Catholics and the Protestant. We're not a bridge. The guys who wrote our prayer book, Cranmer, I'll talk about him in a minute, <clears throat> a lot of our guys lost their lives because he stood up for the Protestant, the Protestant faith. And everything that smacked uh, Roman Catholicism was jettisoned 
uh, and and the our prayer book is very reformed. And that's a complicated history because then Queen Mary comes on the throne. She tries to get it back into its Roman roots, and a lot of people lost their lives because of Mary and so forth. But it ends up to be a very Protestant uh, prayer book. And at that time, during the Reformation, the Word of God just kind of burst forth preaching. became just bursts forth with brand new energy. There was a revival of preaching. And our patron saint is Thomas Cranmer, C-R-A-N, Cranmer, M-E-R, Cranmer, who as far as we know, almost single-handedly produced the first book of common prayer. And if you've been keeping up with recent events on our website and, uh, and adventurer, you will know that what used to be the Latimer House in Mountain Brook, where Larry Taunton had, had Fixed Point Ministry, they moved and the Advent has closed Advent Park, and now we are in what used to be the Latimer House, except now we call it the Cranmer House. And you'll be hearing more about that. But that is in Mountain Brook, where Sharon Kohler will be doing children's ministry, and we'll be having various meetings there. The women's ministry will be meeting there on Friday and Thursday nights and other times. So we have that as kind of a meeting place. It's called the Cranmer House, and that's named after our patron, St. Thomas Cranmer. <clears throat> the first official revision of the 1549 book was in 1662 in England. And that is still remains to this day the official prayer book of England. And in the United States, much, much of what we have in our present prayer book, at least right one, is taken from the 1660 prayer book. And if you Worship in England, the 1660 prayer book, and you come to the Advent on any Sunday morning, you're going to feel right at home because this is almost, it comes right out of that 1660 book. Right to, that's different. Right to was, was that revision was uh, 1979. In fact, I, I know, personally, I know some of the, some of the guys who put together right to. Uh, but the, the difference is not just Elizabethan language. Uh, and, and the difference is the, the difference is theological and the emphasis theological emphasis. Now I'm going to write some of what I've talked about this morning already. I'm going to be talking about in the next copy of the Adventurer. So you can say, well, gosh, she's just using some old material. Well, a little bit, yeah. But it's important that uh, I know everybody's not here. I, I do I do want to start talking a little bit about our liturgy. That's all I want to say this morning about the background. Like I say, I've just scratched the surface. It's such a rich history, uh, you can uh, study a lot more. Uh, but that's all I want to say about the background to the liturgy. Let me just say a few things about the practical aspects of our liturgy. I have a longtime uh, a Christian friend, a guy that, in fact, he's a Walford golf coach, and he, he, he emails me back and forth, and he, he reads my sermons, and I, I got one uh, from him. He said, you know, he said, I could almost be a Episcopalian, uh, except for the fact that uh, that that rigid liturgy that you use, he said, can can you guys even say a prayer without the prayer book in your hand? That's what he wanted to know. Well, I assured him that we could indeed pray without a prayer book in our hand. As to the rigid liturgy, you know, you do it the same thing every time. I I sent him a couple of paragraphs written by C.S. Lewis on what we call the fixed form of liturgy. Some of you have read it because I have posted it before in the adventure, but let me read it again. So listen to it again for the first time. <clears throat> the advantage of a fixed form of service is that we know what is coming. 
extemporary public prayer has this difficulty. We don't know whether we can mentally join in until we've heard it. It may be phony. It may be heretical. Therefore, we are called upon to carry on a critical and devotional activity at the same time, two things that are hardly compatible. In a fixed form, we ought to have gone through the motions before in our private prayers. The rigid form really sets our devotions free. I also find that the more rigid it is, the easier it is to keep one's thoughts from straying. Also, it prevents getting too completely eaten up by whatever happens to be the preoccupation of the moment. The permanent shape of Christianity shows through. I don't see how the extemporary method can help becoming provincial, and I think it has a great tendency to direct attention to the minister rather than to God. Now, that's just C.S. Lewis's opinion, and I happen to love it. But whether, whether I am praying, I mean, whether I'm praying an ancient collect, and we'll talk about collects in just a moment, or as I say my daily prayers and I just let my thoughts, you know, unfold extemporaneously in a prayer, I have good days on which I'm focused, and I have good days on which I'm not focused. That's just the way I am. Sometimes I can focus. Sometimes I'm, my mind is all over the world, and it doesn't matter whether it's fixed or not. I can be saying the Lord's Prayer, and I get halfway through it, and I, my mind is on the moon. And I say to myself, you know, I am just saying words. And I start over. And <laughs> no, sometimes I do that. But it doesn't matter it, whether I'm doing it extemporaneously or, or, or fixed form. I have good days and, and bad days. But I think the question is, is it coming from my heart? That's the big question with any prayer. Whether you're praying one of the, one of the 15th, whether you're praying Thomas Cramer's prayer, or, or you're praying somebody else's prayer, what, what matters is, Am I praying this from my heart? But personally, uh, I find it kind of thrilling to know that I am praying a prayer that has withstood centuries and centuries of Christianity and knowing that the prayer that I am praying, that these guys who were martyred in the 16th century prayed the exact same prayer that I'm praying. And I find that, I find that to be uplifting. And again, the question is, Am I just reciting because it's beautiful, or am I really praying it from, from the heart? But that's the case in any prayer. I'm going to stop right there before we pick up the liturgies, and I'm going to go through this liturgy real quickly. But just pause right here to see if there are any questions so far about what I've said or, or objections. I've just scratched the surface. What, what I'm going to do now, David, David Fitzgerald, Some of the really enormous megachurches have elevated the clergyman to equality with Christ. Uh-huh. I mean, the person the, and the books, it, 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 it worries me. Yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. You know, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound, I, I just want to, I hope, this come, I probably shouldn't say it, but I'll do it anyway. But I want to say it sincerely. But occasionally, somebody called me to pray or, whenever it is, and I say a prayer, and they'll come up to me and say, Frank, oh, that was just beautiful. And I think to myself, you know, that, that's, I mean, I, that's not good, because in other words, I mean, Frank, that's beautiful, like I submitted something that I created, and don't you think it was pretty? Did you like that prayer? I did. Well, I had my words together then, didn't I? 
You know, I don't know. I hear what you're saying. And that's what C.S. Lewis is sometimes. Sometimes you can direct your attention to the prayee, the prayer, in, 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 instead, of, uh, in, instead of where it ought to be directed and, and it ought, focus ought to be on God, whether it be in a prayer or, or whatever it is. Okay, so uh, thank you, David. One Let's. Frank, going along with what you were talking about, about 12 years ago, my wife Sandy and I and my son Michael were in London on Easter, and we went to St. Stephen's, and there were so few people there, they let us sit in the choir. There were only eight people in attendance, which means we got a lot of personal attention. On Easter? Yes, sir. Personal. Well... Three twenty-three. No, let's go to the beginning. Yeah, three twenty-three. That's the beginning, isn't it? Okay. So, depending on the season, we'll pick up on. It will be blessed be God. That's the long season. If it's during uh, the Easter season, we go with Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Or during the penitential seasons. Uh, bless the Lord who forgiveth all our sins. Then you come to uh, the bottom of the page there. You come to what is known as the Collect for Purity. That was in the 1549 prayer book, uh, verbatim. It's that This particular prayer uh, is over 1,000 years old. By the way, this is called a collect, not a collect. It's called a collect. What a, a, I'm going to talk more about collect in another class, but a collect is simply a prayer that has a certain linguistic form. Talk more about that. Uh, so that's the collect for purity. That begins our worship, uh, and it's absolutely beautiful. Then we go to the top of page 324. We do either the summary of the law or the decalogue. Now, if you come to 730, you know we do a decalogue once a month. We try to do the decalogue occasionally at 9 o'clock and 11. We don't do it often. We're so time-constrained there. Talk more about that, too. After the decalogue comes the curia liaison. That's the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, the Lord have mercy. It's there for a reason. The reason it's there is once we read the law, whether it be the Decalogue or the summary of the law, what's our immediate response is, Lord, have mercy, because I've failed. I cannot keep the law. I can't do Hear what our Lord Jesus Christ say, I fall so short. And so the first thing we do is, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Uh, if you say, or we follow with the Kyrie liaison, which is the only remnant of the Greek language, which the New Testament was written that's regularly used in our liturgy. Or, or you could opt out for the uh, Trisagion, which is a hymn of praise. The Glory in Excelsis uh, at, the, at the bottom of the page there uh, is, of course, taken from Luke's Gospel. That's, that was the hymn that the angels sang when, when Jesus was born. Glory to God in the highest on the earth, peace, good, good will toward men from Luke, chapter, from Luke chapter 2. We'll do that when we have time. Next comes the Collect of the Day. Now, the collect of the day changes with each Sunday, and it reflects the emphasis of the season. Uh, for instance, if it's, uh, let's assume that it's 2.18. Let's assume that it's Lent. The collect of the day will be Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted of Satan. Come quickly to help us, who, who, we who are assaulted by many enemies. And as you know, the weakness of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save through Jesus Christ our Lord and so forth. Uh, or, if it's, uh, or if it's during the season of the Trinity, for example, 
then it would change uh, and it would be <clears throat> Almighty and everlasting God, you have given us your servants grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and of the power of your divine majesty to worship the unity and so forth. So the cogs of the day changes every Sunday. I'm probably not telling you a thing you don't know, but we're going to get into this and hope it will become interesting. Then comes the lessons. We do, we do two lessons usually at nine. Uh, and and uh, we, we will do either the epistle, the Old Testament, and always, uh, always the gospel. Remember, during the Reformation, the Word of God it's become exploded with new energy. Uh, and and we after we read each lesson, we acknowledge uh, that we have that this has been the word of the Lord. We respond, thank, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be uh, to God. And then we have the reading from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We usually stand there. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The only problem with that, and it's fine, it's a part of who we are. Traditionally, we have done it. But uh, the only problem with that is that as if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have particular authority over the church that, say, Corinthians or, or some of the other, any, any of the other books in, in the Bible don't have, and that is simply not true. At any rate, we have the readings. After, after that, we have the sermon. I talked about how, how that, uh, since the Reformation, has been a major, major part of our worship service. After that comes the creed that we re always read on Sundays and other major feasts. The, the Nicene Creed is a summary of the faith. This is 326. It had its, it began its formulation at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, and it was finalized and it was ratified at the Council of Constantinople in 381. And it was developed, as I suggested earlier, it was developed under the mandate of Constantine so that it would be sure that the empire had a faith that we could all agree on what we believe. Because there was all kinds of various heresies that were circulated, and, and the creed always brought us back. In fact, it's been said, why is it after the sermon? It's been said because it's, been, it's a counterbalance or corrective to the sermon. And when, and, and when, uh, when the preacher veered off into various kind of heresies, we always could count on that. And listen, it, it comes in handy. Uh, you could always count, well, at least we'll say the creed. So regardless of what the preacher said, you can all stand up, thanks be to God, and say what we really do believe. It brings us back to the, to the faith that was once, once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, the word, very word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. It's a fourth century document. What's the difference between that and the Apostles' Creed? We do the Apostles' Creed uh, in morning prayer. We, we know less about where the Apostles' Creed came from than we do Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed, we know where it came from. The Apostles' Creed... We don't really, we aren't real sure other than it, it, it's, it, it's been a part of the medieval church, early medieval church, uh, and, and, we, and it's uh, a part of, of who we are, and it is also doctrinally sound and serves the same purpose. But we do the, the Nicene Creed and the Eucharist, and we do the Apostles' Creed during the morning prayer. Then we get to the prayers of the people. Now, we usually, at 9 o'clock, we use one of the other forms. If you, could, if you don't have it, unless you've got a prayer book, you could turn to page 383. And forward, you'll see all kinds of different forms that you use for the prayers of the people. But this is when in the service, everyone, we, we express this common concerns we have. We pray for uh, various aspects of the church. We pray for the civil government. We pray for our families. We pray for our friends and the prayers of the people. And am I going too fast? No. Then you go to confession of sin. That, uh, you know, when a person's life becomes, uh, is, is, the more you develop spiritually, the more you'll recognize your need to confess your sin uh, and, and 
it, it's whoever gives himself to, to personal uh, self-examination and repentance will soon discover that contrition is confessing a sin is, is just is just uh, one of the most wonderful freeing things that you can do. Uh, and we, we always confess our sins before we go to take communion. And then, of course, at the bottom of page 332, the absolution. God, God, does, God longs to forgive those who confess. And the absolution there is to give us to, to remind us of God's, of God's forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. What follows are the comfortable words. Uh, these are all from Scripture to give comfort for those who have confessed their sins and have been assured of God's forgiveness, then we have the comfortable words there uh, on page 332. As you read the rubies, it says, may read any or one of these. And then the peace. There is no such thing as peace with God without forgiveness of sins. Uh, because we have been forgiven, now we have peace. And that's why it's there in the service. After the confession, after the absolution, now the peace of the Lord be with you. The peace that Christ has made for us and that we yearn to have with one another. Moving very quickly now, I'm going to try to bring this together as quick as I can. Then we go into the Eucharist. Uh, the Lord be with you in the middle of page 333. The source and Carta, as we call it, is often sung. Uh, we don't do it too much here, but we do sing sometimes. Now, let me show you a place where a lot of people get lost, especially with visitors. And then it comes down to the bottom of page 333 with uh, what we call uh, the, uh, the, the, the prayer. Uh, let us give thanks to the Lord our God is meat and right so to do. It is very meat. The celebrant says, right and abound in duty, that we should at all times and all places give thanks to thee, O Lord, O Father, Almighty, everlasting God. You change the page, and you see then as a proper preface prayed. Now, you see, that changes. It changes every season. For instance, if we, if we, if we were in the season, uh, if we were in the season of, let us say, Trinity again, uh, where would I go? Let's do Advent because that's Christmas. That's easier. Now, uh, I'm pausing here a little with a little purpose because this is where a lot of people get lost. Give thanks to thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God, because this is Christmas, because thou didst give Jesus Christ, thine only Son, to be born for us, who by the mighty power of the Holy Ghost was made very man from the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother, that we might be delivered from the bondage of sin and to receive the power of thy children. Therefore, going back to the prayer book with angels and archangels and all the hosts of heaven. See, every, that's going to change depending on the season. And the season or the occasion or the Sunday. And, that's, and, and that will reflect the emphasis of the season or the occasion. And then you go right into, therefore, with angels and archangels. How many people get lost there sometimes? I wonder, why in the world? Where are they? Well, you don't even try to follow. You just listen. Unless you're going to flip your prayer book back and forth, which kind of would be difficult. So then you go uh, into the Sanctus, the Holy, Holy, Holy. That, of course, comes from Isaiah 3. See, all of these, all of these parts of the liturgy come from Scripture. Uh, it, we're full of Scripture here. The Benedictus, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and then we go into the Eucharistic prayer itself. Uh, the, the first paragraph there it commemorates what Jesus has done for us by going to the cross. And then uh, at the bottom of page 334, we have what's called the institution narrative. For in the night in which he was betrayed. And then the second paragraph, likewise after supper. This is when Jesus gave us the institution of the Lord's Supper. Then you come to the, the next paragraph, which starts, Wherefore, O Lord and Heavenly Father, that paragraph is called the Anamnesis. 
And if you, if you see the anamnesis, uh, see the word down there that says having in remembrance. We, we're going to remember this. About seven sentences down, having remembers, having remembrance is blessed passion and precious death is mighty resurrection. Well, that's the, anamnesis is the opposite of amnesia. So in the Greek, anytime you get the word a or an, it means the opposite. So it's an amnesia, anamnesis. It's the opposite from amnesia. So what? And it's it's more powerful than just remembering. Uh, it, it's to recall something so, so vividly that that you break out. I used to pick peaches from my grandmother. And when I think about it sometimes, I don't have to be around peaches. My neck will break out because of peach fuzz. But that's to live back into something so so vividly and profoundly that you, you know, were you there when they crucified our Lord? Sometimes it makes me want to tremble. So that's anamnesis that you go back and remember it so vividly that it affects you physically. That is anamnesis. Uh, and then uh, we go down to call the next paragraph the, the epiclesis. You know, vouchsafe to bless and sanctify with that word and Holy Spirit. These are gifts and creatures of bread and wine. That is when the officiant is invoking the Holy Spirit into the proceeding, into the, into the body uh, and bread. Now, the Roman Catholics think that, right, they have the tradition here that, that at that particular time, when you do that prayer right there, the epiclesis, that the, that the bread and the wine actually become, called transubstantiation, trans, uh, actually becomes the bread and wine. The reformers always denigrated that uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and did not go with that. But there, the, the truth is there is a wide, wide range of, of, of understanding about what happens to the bread and wine. But suffice it to say, our Lord said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance for me. That's all that matters. Uh, and let me just quote Queen Elizabeth. I, Queen Elizabeth, I, who brought together the desperate factions of the Church of England under one banner, famously said about the real presence, quote, "'Twas God's word that spake it. He brake the bread and brake it. And what the word did make it, that I believe and take it." <laughs> no, it that's pretty good, I think. Whatever happens, you know, she, she, the Lord said it, I'm going to do it. So that's kind of where we are. Then the supplications uh, uh, follows, and that's uh, that are the blessings we derive from taking the bread and wine. Then we work ourselves into the doxology, uh, from whom and in whom the unity of the Holy Ghost be all honoring, uh, O Father, Almighty World, without end. Amen. Then the Lord's Prayer. Then the breaking of the bread. We break the bread where the 1928 prayer book did it, you know, back in the, we don't break it there. We break it in the prayer. We break it uh, back when, when it said, uh, and the Lord took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. That was in all the prayer books. The settlement would break it right there. Not here on page 337, but back in doing the institution. That's when we do it here at the Advent. So if anybody asks you, why do y'all do it there? We say it because it's what the Lord prefers. That's the answer. <laughs> Thomas Cramer thought this way you should break it, and that's the way we'll break it. So, uh, and then, uh, okay, uh, I, I have time to get to the prayer of humble access that's at the bottom of page 337. This is one of the most, for me, how do you take communion without doing the prayer of humble access? I don't know. Uh, it was always, in the 28 prayer book, it was, you had to do it. Here it says may. The people may join and say, there's no may here. We do it. 
Uh, and only in 1979 did the word may show up. But in all previous prayer books since Thomas Cramer wrote in 1549, this was not optional. You, took, you, you did the prayer of humble access. It comes from Scripture uh, where the Lord talks about even the, even the, the dogs on the table uh, eat the bread that falls, you know, the crumbs under the table. I can tell you time and time again how a, a people who have experienced the freedom that Christ won for us at the cross through the praying of this, all ages, had a teenage girl one time that never felt so freed up to take communion in her life. After one day, it just hit her like a bolt of lightning. Uh, uh, I am not worthy to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou, who, but, but, thou, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And bingo, it hit her, and she felt freed up with tears in her eyes. She took, she took communion. I'll tell you that story sometime if I haven't already told it. Some of the Baptist friends say, you guys don't ever have an altar call. And I say, well, we have it every time we take the Eucharist, we have an altar call. Because this right here is the, this is the, this is the, 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 the doorway to the altar call. We pray this, and then we go up, and we open up our hands like this as beggars, and you put the bread uh, in, in, in the hand. Okay, then you go to the post-communion prayer, which is page 339. That also is from the Catechism of 1549. It's a great summary of the benefits of the faith. And then you have the final blessing and dismissal, and it is 10 until 11. I did it. So, I, you know, my whole point here, guys, is, uh, is, is just to say that we have just a jewel here in this liturgy, and I think it's precious, uh, and I, I, I just I thank God for it and pray that we can continue to use it uh, to, to God's glory. We could also do this with morning prayer, too, which was written by Thomas Kramer, the right one. That was, that was designed for Monday through Friday. It's a whole, why do we do it on Sundays occasionally here? That's a whole other class. But I'd love to talk to you about it sometime. But we don't want to lose that tradition. Now I see people going out even during the week. They have nothing but the Eucharist. Uh, and so the, the morning prayer is becoming uh, a, 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 another species that, that is endangered. And, and it, well, what a shame for us to lose so our, our rich, rich Anglican heritage that we find with Thomas Cramer being our patron saint. But it's not Thomas Cramer. It's just the fact that, that English reformers were so deeply immersed in Scripture and in, and, in, and, and in good, solid theology. That's who we are. That's who we are as Anglicans. So thank you for being here, and I'll get ready for another service. Let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.